Prepare to hear the truth from a real whistleblower and American patriot. Here's civil liberties enthusiast, Second Amendment defender, and indefinitely suspended FBI agent, Kyle Serafin. Hello, my friends, and welcome to the Kyle Serafin Show. I am Kyle Serafin, and thank you for joining me today. Uh, I've been a little bit remiss in not putting out an episode in a couple days. I understand that it was the new year and that we have uh, joined 2023. The calendar has flipped, so hopefully we have a lot of optimism and upbeat feelings of hope. Uh, We're seeing some really interesting things happening right now as we try to figure out whether we're going to have a Speaker of the House at some point. Maybe this week, maybe not. Uh, And in all of that, I've been uh, doing a number of interviews on on different people's shows, and I've been trying to talk to uh, different groups on Twitter spaces. So if you've been joining me for those, you've heard plenty of my voice. But if you have not, um, welcome to this episode of The Kyle Serafin Show, which I'm doing on January the 5th. And hopefully we'll get it out there very shortly. I am not being joined today by producer Phil. He is uh, doing some family things, so I am going to be winging it on the tech stuff. So please bear with me. I think we got this thing under control. Uh, We're going to be covering a number of topics, and uh, I'll kind of list them out for you here right now. We are going to be talking about the Twitter files uh, and some of the discoveries of Matt Taibbi, Barry Weiss, Michael Schellenberg, David Zweiss. Zweig? I hope I got his name right. Sorry about that, David. And Lee Fang. Um, I think there's a lot of really interesting stuff that has come out of these, and I participated in a couple of Twitter spaces uh, discussing my take on them from someone who was inside the FBI, since the FBI was such a critical player in this, and also someone who's getting a lot of background information, let's say, from people who are currently in the FBI and what they feel about it. Um, We're going to talk about the... um, the databases of DNA that are out there in the world right now, whether they be 23andMe or Ancestry.com or things like that, sort of the danger that those tools can uh, can be in the wrong hands. Um, this is, of course, come to light because the Moscow, Idaho murderer who stabbed to death those four people, allegedly, um, was apparently found with an Ancestry.com info. I will have to try to pull up an article of that on the fly to make sure that those facts are correct. But what I do want to get into is the Fourth Amendment and um, sort of what sort of information are you willing to give away? Uh, We've talked about privacy just a little bit on some of our previous podcasts, and I think it's a worthwhile discussion for you to at least go in open-minded and understanding what's at stake, and then make your own decisions. I don't want to tell anyone how to make their minds up. Um, So all that being said, uh, we're going to also cover, first of all, this, uh, we're going to kind of go backwards in this, and I'm going to start with an idea of something called ideological capture. And uh, to do that, I'm going to uh, transfer over into my browser here and I'm going to play a little clip from Joe Rogan. I think it's interesting to note. Number one, uh, Joe Rogan had to retweet out this, this video. There was a clip from his show discussing this and he was going over a tweet and the tweet turned out to be fake. I don't think that matters. I think what's really interesting as someone pointed out in some of the, uh, the back and forth that I've had on that platform is that, um, not only does it not matter, but the parody accounts are basically looking at what is actually going on in their real lives and online and what people are saying to each other in real forms. And then they're posting it like in sort of a distilled fashion. And then half of the country goes, yeah, obviously that's true. And the other half, because it looks just like a mirror to the way they think, they go, well, that's not true. That's parody. And I think that's kind of where we're at right now. And we're in this place where people can't recognize parody for what it is because it still says something true, even if it is a uh, totally fabricated, you know, quote. Uh, and, and my statement upon that, which you'll see in just a second here, was that essentially this is what literature has always done. It's always showed us a mirror of what's going on. It doesn't have to be literally true for it to still figuratively give us some insight into the way that people work. So... Pull this sucker up right now. And here we go. All right, so hopefully this will play out and let's give it a shot. So this is Joe Rogan talking. I'm just going to uh, let it run. Maybe. No, maybe. What do you think, Joe? I will never regret the vaccine, even if it turns out I injected actual poison and have only days to live. My heart 
and is was in the right place. I got vaccinated out of love while anti-vaxxers did everything out of hate. If I have to die because of my love for the world, then so be it. But I will never regret or apologize for it. It's a fascinating perspective. And it's also a fascinating perspective that this person claims to be about love, but has the most uncharitable view of people who didn't get vaccinated. They, that everyone got anti-vax out of hate. The idea that I didn't get vaccinated out of hate, I find so ridiculous. Like, I don't hate anyone. I am a loving person. I do it on purpose. I go out of my way to be as charitable and as kind as possible. And when I don't, I feel very disappointed in myself. If So I think Joe's making a really interesting point, and I think that uh, he goes on to talk about it. He's talking to Brett Weinstein in that particular clip, and he's giving this discussion that says that the, these people have basically looked at the world in a very tribal way. Uh, it's something on us versus them vaccinated versus unvaccinated. I don't know if that's by design. It feels like it is. We're living in a time when picking a team is more and more, um, it, it, if you're on the team, you get kudos from your team and you get indictment of your character and your moral standing and your worth as a human being from not your team. It's really dangerous. It's really scary. I don't remember that being the case when I was growing up. I remember growing up in the 80s and the 90s, and as the Cold War was coming to an end, everybody was on Team America, sort of fundamentally. I don't remember anybody choosing um, political divides and stuff like that. But we are very divided right now as a country, and it'd be foolish to say otherwise. So when we're talking about something like that, he, he discusses later on in this piece about uh, ideological capture and the idea that your ideology... Um, and I would argue is sort of like a secular religion is what we're looking at right now is that people have moved into these places, whether you're this ultra MAGA type, um, which doesn't, you know, perfectly describe me, even though I'm a, a huge America fan uh, and, and the way I don't want to live in any other country. Um, and then there's also sort of this other leftist take where it's like America's evil and uh, all of your ideas that you have with your American flags makes you a bad person. And if you want to own guns, you're wrong. Uh, it's funny, I even got into a, a short little uh, just reply to a, I think, a Missouri state representative who said that she was trying to introduce legislation to require a permit in Missouri for the ability to buy a gun, which would still require you to get a background check once you had it um, under the federal forms, which is 4473. So why are we in this place where, uh, you know, these people are going to try to get rid of rights that are American rights. That's, by the way, not the way that Missouri operates in the most part. Like, maybe the cities do, but, like, people in Missouri are... They're in the Midwest. They own guns. There's lots of open land. Um, you know, I, I lived in Kansas, right across the state line, for a little while, um, in Overland Park. Uh, and I, I don't think there's a huge difference between the people that live in, in uh, Kansas, even close to the rural parts. And you drive right over and you're in the rural part of Missouri, and it's the same thing. We used to actually skip over the state line sometimes because uh, the bars in Kansas would close at 2, if memory serves. And then they would close at 3 if you were in Missouri. And so people would you know, start their night out at one place and right around 1 o'clock before you would start getting close to that final call, you jump over and, and give yourself an extra hour or so if you wanted to continue your night. So I had friends that wanted to do that. I was usually a pretty good designated driver, even though I'm not crazy about being up till 3 a.m. Uh, I used to be able to do that more when I was in my 20s. So we're in this place. Like The ideology has captured your response to all things. It's like I can assign certain values to those who don't agree with me. I'm willing to um, attack you. And, uh, and suggest that I know what your motives are, that they're out of hate, and that mine were out of love, that that's how, how different we are. And, you know, to, to imply that someone like Joe Rogan, who I think it seems to be a very reasonable guy, or someone like me, didn't want to get a, a shot that I don't think any of us quite understand yet, and probably won't for some time, the idea that we would go and get this shot, because we, we wouldn't get the shot because we hated people. I mean, that actually happened in my family. So, um, you know, my mother-in-law and, um, my wife's uh, stepfather were reaching out and, and, um, and then my, my father-in-law and his girlfriend who have been in the family, you know, like they've been part of the family since I married into it. So over 10 years now, um, they were all saying like, you know, if you don't get this shot, it, it means that you don't love us. They were at least implying that it's like, if you loved us, you would do this, you would do it for us. 
Um, but I'm looking down the barrel of having three little kids and a really unclear. I mean, at the time that I think the argument started, my wife was pregnant. That didn't seem like a good idea. And I, I just keep coming back to this example of thalidomide, which I have a hard time saying, but I think I got it out. And, and the way that thalidomide was, was such a, a crazy, um, you know, solution to a problem that really wasn't nearly as dire as it seemed. I'm sure morning sickness is, is awful. I've watched my wife go through it and it's terrible. Um, but the result of a, 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 a pharmaceutical that was approved for use, you know, was that some children ended up without long bone formation and they had flippers. And if you don't know the story of thalidomide, like look it up. Um, I'll have to try to, I do it on the fly, but it'd be much easier if Phil was here. Um, it, it's it's one of those catastrophic failures of our of our medical device industry and our, and our medical or pharmaceutical industries. It is a thing that handled sort of a benign problem. And, and for everybody's belief that COVID is so you know scary and dangerous, the people who overwhelmingly died from this this virus were old, and they were sick, um, and they were old and sick. And there are some young people, there's some tragic, you know, things that we don't understand what all the comorbidities that people might've had or genetic predispositions. And I'm, I'm aware of that. I'm sympathetic that, that young people died as well, but not in numbers that was enough to, to strike the fear that people had in this country. That's just my personal take on it as someone who has treated very ill people, who has moved very ill people and, and moved them into definitive care as a paramedic, like picked people up who, you know, I've, I've touched people who've died. Like you can't, you can't beat around that. That's a real it's a real heavy experience to have that when you transport them and they're breathing and you get them to a hospital and you come back and they're dead, you know, that's happened to me dozens of times. I don't know how many times, like plenty. People don't survive because of a lot of decisions that were made in their life. And very, very rarely is it something that we will all fully understand. I mean, I've, I've taken people in who are talking to me, sitting upright and I've left the hospital and come back to the same hospital, literally on my first day as a paramedic, come back to the hospital and they were doing CPR and compressions. Then they called it. It, it was a, a failure. And I don't know what led to that. I know it wasn't me. Uh, and I know it wasn't those physicians, honestly, because that person was circling the drain, whether we knew it or not. And there's a lot of us that are out there running around with a ticking time bomb of some kind in our body. We just don't know what it is, whether it's cancer, uh, whether it's heart disease, um, whether it's an aneurysm that's ready to go off at some point that we're going to lose up. You know, I've had 30 something year old um, patients who came in that were doing yard work, like in their early thirties in Texas. And they were brought into the hospital because they felt terrible. And we um, did a CT or, you know, they did some, um, they did some imagery and radiology and found out that the guy had literally was literally bleeding out inside of his own blood vessels because he had an aortic aneurysm, but it was only in the inner lumens. And there's enough space there that he literally bled out inside of his own body, inside of his own blood vessels of all things, because he had some congenital defect and you could have never seen it. So it's, it's really dangerous. I feel like to start attributing and, and making these wild decisions. And like, honestly, I'm for everybody making their own medical decisions. Like do, do what you do. If you chose to get the shot, do it. If you regret getting the shot, that's okay too. If you don't regret getting the shot, I don't, I, it, like none of those things matter to me. If that's your personal decision about your own, your life. But if you're going to assign value to other people because of what they did or didn't do, that's really, really scary stuff. I think it's, um, I think it's really awful. I don't think that's the way that we have historically looked at each other. And um, and I think it's part of the symptom, and I don't think it's what's dividing us, but I do think it's a symptom of what is dividing this country at this point. So I think it's worth noting that. I think it's worth us all being aware that it's out there. And then I've been attacked because <laughs> I, I responded to Joe, and I'll, I'll just read my uh, my response to it because I think it's, I said, Joe, fake or not, the sentiment expressed and your responses are all on point. It's very much like literature. It can be fiction and still express a truth. The ideological capture is exactly what is and was happening. There's no apology needed because uh, because obviously the tweet wasn't wasn't real. Um, it isn't like this tweet is the only data point we have. And I've got a, like a dozen responses of which more than more than um, not. It's people with angry memes and, and people, um, you know, um, being pejorative about me and people referring to me as an effing idiot and uh, people saying that I've stressed my mind so much now I'm, I'm ready to go work out and some other funny things. And um, and that's all fine. You know, like that's that is literally proving the point that I have um, that there's ideological capture and these people didn't address whether or not they have immunity to COVID, which they don't because we know people who got those shots still got COVID. Um, all my family members outside of my parents, I've got uh, four brothers and a sister and they all 
got those shots and they all have had COVID like everybody else, you know, so it doesn't really matter, but it is kind of funny. Um, and it's kind of sad, I think, in a lot of ways. Um, I'm going to transition over to talking about the Twitter files right now. But I think it's worth knowing that that shows the divide. And the divide continues, continues no matter what we talk about. So it, it actually is uh, relevant in the Twitter files as well. So once again, uh, if you're not familiar with the Twitter files, and I think everybody is at this point, but I, I don't want to, um, I won't I won't assume any knowledge that's not in evidence. Um, there are some reporters that were given access to the internal workings uh, and communications that happened at Twitter between employees and then also between members of the federal government and certain agencies. And they are being investigated and written up in a format by Matt Taibbi, Barry Weiss, Michael Schellenberg, David Zwieg, I hope I got that right, and Lee Fang. So there's a handful of people that basically had access to these files and, um, and they were chosen by Elon Musk to be able to tell a story that we think is important. And so we'll, um, this is a, uh, a little look right here at the substack of uh, Matt Taibbi. Um, so they, they're coming out in the, sort of this format that says the Twitter files. And, and you can kind of see there's a, uh, there's a whole bunch of information that is released in here. And if you haven't read them, you can go back. It started, it looks like, on um, December 2nd is what this uh, thing. And if you're just listening to the audio here, I'm just scrolling through the web page from Matt Taibbi's substack. Um, it's worth noting that they told a number of different stories, but they didn't tell them in order. And uh, I think that's really acceptable. I don't think that's a problem. There's people that have been upset about the fact that uh, that this is a curated story, that it's cultivated in some way. Um, I'm going to kind of shed some light on that as someone who's done investigations and when you what it looks like when you have a lot of information in front of you. So, of course, it's curated. They have thousands maybe hundreds of thousands of documents um matt taibbi was in a space earlier talking about he had the emails from from jim baker who was the general counsel and has been and has been fired since these were released and jim baker actually tried to meddle in the release of these files for whatever that's worth uh jim baker is famously a 30-year doj guy he got an honors internship or something to that effect in 1990 and has basically worked for the doj all the way for about 30 years with only two years in that those three decades where he walked off into uh, private practice and was there for you know 12 months or so and then came back into DOJ in a different role. Uh, he was referred to as Mr. FISA by some people and he was one of the, uh, the integral people that was involved in um, the just the way the FBI ran things at the Office of General Counsel. He was the top general counsel, I guess, or the deputy general counsel. I think he was... The, I think he was the general counsel, uh, including time while I was working uh, in Washington, D.C. So we, we sh would have shared time in D.C., although we never crossed paths. And then, uh, you know, Jim Baker went on and was hired on by Twitter. So that's fine. And then did that. And then, like, he literally was let go after it was found out uh, that Elon Musk found out that he was meddling with the actual data and information that Taibbi and company were exposing on Twitter. Like in real time, we saw what what he had done, and that that, that it was uh, that he was eliminated for that. So, you know, what does the story tell us? The story, which was from the most recent drop, actually is kind of like a prequel. And if you're um, if you're a Star Wars fan, I kind of liken it to showing uh, Anakin with the uh, with the shadow of Darth Vader. So that what they showed is that the uh, there was some some perfect storm that kind of set up the ability of the intelligence community and the FBI in particular to get deeply involved in the workings of Twitter. And we have to assume, we have to speculate that that also included the other big tech companies. We just don't have the evidence for that yet, but I think that the, uh, I think that is either forthcoming or it'll never come out, but we'll pretty much have to assume that is true because that's the nature of how this kind of stuff worked. So when we're talking about it, what did they do? Uh, we had the perfect storm of the election where Hillary was projected to win. For those of you who don't recall the 2016 election and, and before Trump was inaugurated in 2017, um, Hillary Clinton was a shoe in It was a done deal. There wasn't even a reason for you to show up and vote. It wasn't going to happen. All these sort of things. Um, I was at the FBI Academy. I don't know if I've told this story out loud before to, to people publicly, but uh, I was at the FBI Academy and I watched the returns for what was going on and I, I laughed myself so hard that I cried not because I'm such a huge Trump lover particularly at that time um, but because it was hilarious to just watch this legacy media fail so dramatically in their prediction and their, they were so confident and sure what was going to happen uh, Hillary Clinton was a you know a 
you know, nine to one odds, nine, you know, 10 to one odds that she would destroy him, that there was no reason to show up. And then she just got pummeled in the electoral college, obviously not in the, uh, the popular vote, which I'm sure is a big deal for some people, but she, she lost in dramatic fashion. And we had people like Van Jones that were on CNN. And some of you'll remember that and Rachel Maddow and all these kind of like talking heads that were just blown away that they couldn't believe it. And what, what was going to be like tomorrow? And, and how do we deal with this? And what do I tell my children and all this kind of stuff, which was, um, to me, it was just hilarious only because these people are so smug in what they believed and what they thought was true. And it was just a great instance of the American people coming out and saying that um, regardless of what you said, that is not the case. We're not into it. So Trump wins 2017. He inherits a DOJ that is decidedly against him, whether you like it or not. Um, the evidence was pretty overwhelming that uh, the Crossfire Hurricane investigation was ongoing and it was moving against him uh, in dramatic fashion. We saw uh, Director James Comey removed. Um, we saw my second FBI director, which was going to be Andy McCabe, who we've also seen to be a, a, a pretty partisan figure, um, particularly the fact that he and his wife, uh, that his wife received something like $600,000 from Clinton associated donors for her political campaign. So there's a lot of interplay that was going on in DC that I don't want to rehash specifically, but it was a perfect storm setting up um, some political pressure to come down on big tech. Because if you recall, the big story was that initially Facebook was the reason that Trump won and not just Facebook, but Facebook with Russian meddling. So that's a real specific claim. And what we see in the Twitter files was, is that initially Twitter was like, stay out of it. Let Facebook take the hit. They're obviously a bigger company. They've got more money. They can handle it. And also uh, we just don't see the evidence of Russian interference on our platform. Uh, but that didn't stop the uh, the growing kind of, you know, who's the low-hanging fruit. And also, I guess Twitter is a place where you, there used to be a lot of, and, and now is again, a lot of journalists inter interacting and sharing their stories and so on. It's different than Facebook. Facebook is more community-oriented, I guess. Um, full disclosure, I hadn't been on Twitter at this time, and I was not uh, on Facebook then, and I am barely on it now. I have a placeholder account. So we've got this sort of, uh, this situation where Mark Warner, who was the uh, senator from Virginia, was banging on about how it was Russian collusion and R Russian cooperation, Russian interference, and what are people going to do? And so he's sort of complaining and asking for scalps to be presented to show everybody in America, you know, what were these Russian accounts that moved the election in such dramatic fashion that Hillary didn't win? And when when Twitter, you know, according to their internal documents, came back and they said they had about 2,900 accounts that they were going to review, of those, 179 were suspicious. I'm just quoting the the, um, the tweets from memory here. And it was either 22 or 29 of them. I think it was 22. Uh, turned out to be the actual sort of probably tied to Russia pieces. And so those were eliminated. Um, but that's not very many. That's like a 1% return with maybe a 10% identified. So that's how they started. And then from that, we got to see that they weren't satisfied with the number of scalps they were brought back. So Warner started sort of agitating that they were going to pass some legislation and using that legislation as kind of a cudgel, they were able to press um, self-regulation by Twitter, which did not previously have that instinct, push them into the, into the box of, you know, what is, uh, you know, what should we do? How should we head this off? So we don't have this in the future. And then remember that people at Twitter are pretty decidedly left-leaning out of San Francisco. So they're probably already sympathetic too. But one of the contentions that I made that was so strange about the Twitter files, especially the early stuff we found out with the, all the cooperation that was going on between Twitter and the FBI, is that um, it's very rare, I think, that that private companies want to be bothered by federal law enforcement or any law enforcement. They generally feel like they have a duty and a responsibility to their, their customer base and or their user base. And they're not willingly offering up a lot of information. Um, it sets a bad precedent. It's really expensive for them to keep doing that. There's only a, a small administrative payout to be able to compensate them for their time. So it's not a, a good precedent for them to be out there pushing. And it's certainly not a door that they wanted to open, I think. Um, but once it was established, we were seeing this. That, like The FBI was just walking in and handing them a list of names. And they would say, these are handled. And that's bizarre. Like That is bizarre as someone who has sent off legal process to these types of companies. They don't do that. It's not what they want to do. They try to resist. And... Um, you know, you have to show up with a court order, a subpoena, so on and so forth, a search warrant. So 
that was weird. And what we found out in the last couple of days is that the, ra- the way that they were able to do it is that first they, they held legislation over their head. Tom Fenton was in a space with me and he called it um, gangster government actions. And it's a lot like a protection racket. It's a lot like a shakedown um, that you would see in organized crime where somebody basically goes, you know, it's a, it's a real nice business you have there. It'd be a shame if something happened to it. And so wh- why is legislation such a big deal? And the reason is, is because complying with legislation costs actual money. Like, be very, very clear about that. The idea that somebody was going to introduce legislation where Congress is going to come in and regulate something from the outside is going to cost regulatory dollars. Um, They have to hire attorneys. They have to get a compliance team. They have to make sure that they scrub through all their processes. It takes them away from their core business function. So the idea that uh, someone is going to put legislation in place that's going to directly impact the way you do business, that is... There's a tangible cost associated with that. I don't know what the cost is, but I'm sure it's not cheap, Um, especially if there's penalties that are built in to not complying. So that's that's a big chunk. And once that happens, they started doing self-regulation. The example I gave in one of the spaces that I was talking in is that uh, like the Motion Picture Association of America, they came in and they said, we don't want the government to tell us what we can and can't show in a movie or who can and can't watch it. So we're going to create the uh, MPAA ratings. And that's how you have things like G. PG, PG-13, R, and so on, um, or unrated or X, whatever it's called. And so all those are internal regulations because it's much preferable for an internal entity to put regulation on themselves than to go out there and let the government do it. Because once again, if they fail to comply with their own regulations, that's them fixing it. If you fail to comply with federal law, there may be some penalties and some dollars associated that could be really dangerous. And they're obviously going to be way worse because they're not in the industry. So that's kind of what we're looking at. Um, once the, the internal regulation started happening, happening there, I think there's two things. There's an ideological bend inside of Twitter employees, and then you're already regulating. So wouldn't it be helpful if you got some outside entities that are not trying to push a penalty on you? And the FBI continued to volunteer that. And the way that I read these files, it sounded like a source recruitment operation uh, in the way that the Bureau would do it or any law enforcement agency would do a recruitment of a source. So how do we do that? Um, when you are trying to recruit a source, there's a couple things you want to do. Number one, you want to know that they have the information that you need. Twitter pretty much obviously had some information that would have been of value to the Bureau. Um, do they have the ability to take actions that would be interesting on your behalf? And the answer of, in this case is, of course, yes, as well. And then um, what are their ideological motivations? Do they align with it? Is it patriotism? Is it um, you know, a sense of moral good? Is it a sense of moral outrage because of something bad that happened? You know, All those kind of things. So those are assessing motivations. I think that's pretty easy to do with Twitter as well. And then you wonder, okay, um, do you know, are they taskable? Can you get them to comply? Can they be handled? And when you're looking at a source, like handling issues is a, is a probably one of the number one ways that you close down a source. They can't be handled. They work outside the scope. They're doing things that you didn't ask them to do, or they're, um, they're not doing the things that you did ask them to do. So taskability is a big piece of it. And when we look at that, you see all these little funny taskings. And, and then attaboys that are coming in through these files. It's like, hey, uh, would you be interested in looking at that? Yes, and this. And then you want to make them feel like they're part of the team. So Twitter is not part of the United States government. They're not part of the intelligence community, at least not in any formal sense. And yet uh, the FBI was willing to give some people some clearances. They were going to send them some like inside baseball. Like these are your, these are some intel reports that we're evaluating. This is some stuff that we're we're following in on and we think it's really important. I think you're going to find it really important. So we, uh, you know, the Bureau made them feel special, uh, particularly the people that were engaged to them to the point where uh, Yol Roth, who was the director of safety or whatever it's called experience. I don't know what his official title was, but Yol Roth, um, you know, was like, kind of bragging he's like doing this fanboy thing where he's talking about how excited he is about the fbi and oh there's so many three-letter agencies that want to talk to me that like i can't even keep track and he's sharing these so some of those things were exposed um my wife would find that really funny because once you've been around the fbi once you've been around the intelligence community type people uh there's nothing more boring to a spouse than like what we're up to at work it's just it's not that interesting to them uh my buddy steve friend said something like whenever you're an FBI agent you're the most interesting person in every room with very few exceptions and that that turns out to be fairly true people want to know what's going on uh but I got to tell you our spouses could care less it's boring they've all heard it and it's like uh whatever so and, and it is like that like once you've lived it it's just like I'm fascinated that people are interested in what I have to say half the time um because it's what I did every day for six years and 
you know, it's not particularly interesting to me other than I lived it and I got some issues with what went on. But, you know, people are always telling me they have their minds blown. I guess it's because of the, the, the nature of an intelligence agency is to hide information. So by letting people in on the secret, you get buy-in, and that's what the FBI did. They gave them the attaboys. They gave them the buy-in. They uh, they found out that they were taskable. And, and then at some point, they just started sending tasking, and, and Twitter was on Team FBI. It's like, here's a bunch of accounts we want censored. Boom, handled. Okay, that's troubling. It's probably also illegal because... Everyone has to know that the FBI cannot get involved in First Amendment protected matters by default. Like the Bureau always puts it as a caveat, but it's like it's not a caveat. It's like the, it's the headline for me. First Amendment protected activities cannot be dealt with. It's not the FBI's purview. And it was one of the reasons why I was able to throw out January 6th leads that came in. And I say throw out. I mean, because they were inappropriate for federal law enforcement to be considering. It's like you think that this person might be there because they're a jerk and they love Trump. That's a First Amendment protected activity for him to love Trump and to voice that and to put a sign up in front of his house and to go to a rally that the sitting president is sitting at, uh, speaking at rather. So none of those things are appropriate for the Bureau to get involved in. So I was throwing out January 6th leads on this. I have dismissed Guardian leads when people say, well, I got to like this person because I don't like what they said. Unless they are making a threat over interstate means, no less, it has to be very specific. It's not an FBI issue. It doesn't mean that we wouldn't, you know, if there was a real threat that we would not tell, you know, if it was in person, we would tell the local law enforcement department that might have responsibility, whether a county sheriff or, you know, police department, let them know. But it's not an FBI issue. Like, I don't have any right to go out there and, and investigate that under any of the FBI's, um, you know, powers or authorities. It's what we call a federal nexus, and it's lacking in those cases. And there is no federal nexus to First Amendment protected activities unless there's another crime that is being alleged or there's information that it was committed. So we got to be really specific. It's incredibly dangerous if we're not. But in any case, the FBI pestered and they badgered and they assessed Twitter to all this point. They found that there was compliance there. They went out there and they got it. And then they found that they could task Twitter to do things that the FBI can't do. Like I said, we cannot get involved in First Amendment protected activities. And what the Bureau cannot do explicitly, it cannot do by proxy either. Um, having someone act as an agent of the government, and I would argue that I think it's I'm not the only one who saw it this way. Twitter was acting as an agent of the government in very explicit terms. Um, they had agreements. They had special, you know, um, ways of, of communicating in, in different directions. They were having these uh, industry, sort of, quote, quote, unquote, industry calls where they were bringing on other big tech companies and talking to them. And, you know, one of the ways that you do something with a source is you recruit somebody and then you recruit their network as well, if you can. If you're really trying to you know, make a big operation happen, you've got to get more than one source. I'm confident that was the case. Like I said, we just haven't seen the evidence yet. But there's no reason to believe that it wasn't the same in all the other tech uh, companies, whether it be Google or Amazon or um, Facebook and so on, Meta. So all this stuff is ongoing. They've got this thing and they're asking them to censor American free speech where the default position is there is no crime for, for misinformation or disinformation. The only reason that that would be an issue is if there was, you know, slander or libel that was involved and that that's pretty small potatoes for the FBI. It's what uh, Tom Fitton called low rent, uh, you know, actions. And moreover, um, we have some laws that, that ban foreign influence, but even some of the accounts that they were working against, like things like Russia Today, um, RT.com, which some people know is a, is a Russian outlet, but it's marked as such. The issue that American laws usually cover are when people are choosing to act on behalf of a foreign power or they're going to, um, they're going to advocate for a foreign position without notifying Americans explicitly that there is a foreign position paying for their, their opinion. Uh, and that's what the 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 FARA yeah, is about. This is a, a law that I've actually done a little bit of work with, but it's the Foreign uh, Agent Registration Act. And what that says is if you're going to take money from, say, the Saudi government or Israel or, or the UK, and you're going to advocate a, a position based on their government's needs, then you just have to mark it as such, like this was paid for by the Saudi government, this was paid for, whatever. And you have to register with the FARA office in DC and let them know that you're taking money to advocate a position on behalf of a foreign power. It's really straightforward. It's not a big deal. It's like it's not an incriminating thing to have a fair registration. There's a bunch of lobbyists that do it um, in various different industries. If you're going to you know, run a, an ad saying come visit Qatar, like that might be something you have to register with FARA. So it's pretty straightforward stuff. And the penalties for violating FARA are basically nothing. That's the other piece of it. Like, let's assume that it wasn't being followed. 
when I talked to the attorneys there that prosecuted fair violations, or at least had the potential of doing it, we I said, you know, what can we do about these these people that are that are violating fair up, like based on what our particular investigation was? And they go, well, um, you know, when somebody violates fair, what we do is we send them a strongly worded letter. And I said, okay. Um, and then what? And he goes, well, in 90 days, if they don't come and register with us, then we send them another strongly worded letter. It's like, okay. Um, how effective is that? And he goes, not that effective because if they don't obey that, we'll send them a third, very, very strongly worded letter. And that was sort of the end of it. Like, it's like, okay, was there a prosecution? And he's like, not really. Not as a standalone charge. Very much like, um, you know, everyone always says it's a crime to lie to the FBI. It's a crime to actually lie on any federal document, any federal form, or swear and attest to anything false in front of a, a federal agent. So that's true. That's uh, the 18 United States Code 1001 is the charge. Um, or that's the statute, rather. And, you know, it's a felony. And it's punishable by up to one year in prison which is what, you know, that's the lowest felony that you can have. Um, but nobody is ever charged with 1001 as a standalone. It's always just sort of like an also ran charge. It's something to beef up other indictments or other charges that we might have against you. But I've never heard of anybody like getting a complaint for, for a false statement until you had the things that happened to like Michael Flynn. And so that was a, you know, that was a shift in policy. It showed us some sort of political movement. And a lot of this Twitter information was the same because although there were some Republicans apparently involved in doing some of the censorship, and I think that's worth noting, I think it's important to note that anybody who tries to use this kind of power is wrong and uh, and they're violating our, our core you know principles of, of free speech and, the, and that means that they're violating the Constitution. But it was predominantly in Democrat movements and it was predominantly against right type or what are, were perceived as right-leaning uh, accounts. And that goes back to our idea of ideological capture. There was this like just overwhelming belief that Russia was involved, even though it was found pretty much to be untrue. I don't know if there was any, any strong evidence that the Russians were involved in meddling beyond what they normally do. And, and for what it's worth, the, like the Russians are always trying to mess with our elections, like just like we would mess with anybody else's elections. Uh, the United States is not... Um, out of that arena that's something that is like somebody made the argument that every single country should be attempting to you know influence elections that are favorable towards their own country that's the nature of being a leader um, in any country in the world so i think there's something to be said about that um anyway the the what's what's weird is is when a particular political party is able to capture influence and try to move the needle um in an election and that's much more dangerous than russia trying to push across their agenda because one Americans are not necessarily sympathetic to Russian aims. And two, um, if we are, it's our own responsibility to have those opinions. Like let's say the Russians convinced a bunch of people, like it's still the people who voted opinion. They're allowed to have that opinion. That's the brilliance of our country. It's the danger of living in a free society. It's the, you know, give me dangerous freedom. Don't give me safe tyranny. That's my, that's my rallying cry. I'll take dangerous freedom all day long. So, you know, that's some of the stuff that we're looking at. Um, and speaking of dangerous freedom, I want to kind of move past this. Like if you haven't read the Twitter files, go check it out. It's hashtag Twitter files on, on, uh, on Twitter. You can dig it up and you can go to Matt Taibbi's Substack, and you can read at least the, the summary of it for free, which is just Taibbi. That's T A I B B I tango alpha India, Bravo, Bravo, India And, um, <clears throat> I think I've said here that, uh, you know, I've, I've spent, time talking to Taibi. I think he's a really fair and nice person. He's really kind. Um, when I send him messages, he checks in on me and asks how I'm doing. Um, you know, for a guy that's writing one of the biggest stories of the decade, I think it's kind of nice to, to have a real human contact with someone like that. So I'm just going to attest right now that I think Matt Taibi is a very fair operator, that he is a, uh, doing his absolute best to be measured. And I think that he holds himself to a high standard. So if you want to go read what he has to say, like I said, go to his Substack. You can subscribe to that or not. It's either way. But you can at least get a, a, a check of it. And then all the all the posts are free on Twitter if you want to go look at those. So beyond that, we're talking about dangerous freedom. I want to talk about something else that kind of popped up in the news. And I think it's interesting and bizarre. But um, I was on a podcast with Clint Russell. It's called The Liberty Lockdown. And if you haven't heard of that, go check them out as well. I think he does really great stuff. Our conversation was super easy, very fun, um, relaxed, and I think informative. 
he says that he's kind of like a Rand Paul meets uh, Joe Rogan. I don't know if that's true or not, but I think that he does long form and he does a good job of it. He's a good facilitator of a, of a position that, you know, that we were talking about. So Clint Russell, and by the way, he's got a wild January lined up. Like his, his January um, podcast uh, is full of just names that you're going to want to hear conversations with. So I'm going to be listening to him. I'll just say that. But he did a whole thread about the danger of authoritarianism and, you know, where we're at right now with this sort of information age and how much information is available and how scary it is if you don't know what it is. And it was in the context of talking about these murders that happened in Moscow, Idaho. And there were four young people who were stabbed to death. And they recently arrested a 28 year old grad student from right across the way um, in Washington State. And, uh, you know, he's claimed that he's not guilty. And so he's, he's innocent until proven guilty in our system. And I think we need to hold to that. But they tied him with some, some DNA evidence that came out of one of the databases. And I'll try to look it up while I'm sitting here. And by doing that, um, you know, it puts us in this weird spot where the question is, how much information are we giving away for free? And, and what is it being used for? And who has access to those kind of things, right? And so uh, these kind of questions have to be answered. I uh, went ahead and pulled the sucker up. So we'll just go and transition over here and we're looking at this is the fox news story um so that's his name right there brian Kohlberg. um he's being held without bond blah 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 the story is kind of awful like on every level and if you're not familiar with it i guess you haven't been reading the news but essentially there were four victims they were killed in the middle of the night this guy supposedly slept in stabbed them to death um and so there's his his uh picture from being uh when he mugshot and there's his little appearance from his initial and I'm going to see if we can figure out where it says what specific database they used. But they were able to tie them together with one of these DNA databases, which exist. Um, and, you know, they're really voluntary. This is something that, you know, folks every day, just because they're really interested. Sorry, I forgive my scrolling here. Of course, it's not going to say right now. Um, all these folks are really interested in what their genealogy is. So that's your Ancestry.com, the 23andMe and this type of thing. And when you are interested in that it takes you down the path of spitting in a cup and sending it off and then processing it and then banging it against some sort of dna database i guess we're not going to find it there um we're gonna you know they're gonna have it assessed against some sort of database which is kind of dubious in and of itself because i don't think there is like a huge human genome map that tells us all of the different types of dna that are specifically it's like probabilities and you know the longer that we continue to have these databases the more accurate they get but uh essentially you are voluntarily sending off a dna sample to a private entity with a user agreement that you probably didn't read most likely and there's some degree of privacy there or not and some of them are more than others. And so someone reached out to me and said, well, you know, Ancestry.com is actually uh, publicly available, but uh, 23andMe, and, uh, 23andMe is, uh, is actually really private and so on. And it's like, okay, well, let's talk about that in a little bit longer format because the thing that's really scary when you start dealing with that is, what is the storage policy of that data? And where is it being stored? And is it being really secured according to the user agreement, or is there some little catch-all in there that tells us that even though, even though it might be secure according to the company, they're still going to comply with the laws that exist uh, in the companies where it's being, in the countries that it's being stored. And so specifically what I'm talking about, I'm going to bring up the article here, but there is a lot of information that we need to know about uh, data storage in China. And there are huge server farms that exist and when you start talking about these types of server farms then you know that there's um there's hardware and there's software that is physically located in china so i'm going to run over here this is a tweet that i did last night so my suggestion when i was talking to, to clint because he he had pushed this out here that there was in fact a um you know the, the mass murder caught because of the 23andme style dna test blah, blah blah i said can i add some fear to this these physical storage um facilities that are in china will lead you to this. And we're probably gonna have a couple of things here. The cybersecurity laws that was passed in 2020. Um, and if you are just listening to the audio, I just pulled up a website called datacenterdynamics.com. Uh, there's an author on here whose name is Max uh, Emilianov. He's the CEO of Host for Web, whatever that is. Uh, under new crypto 
Under new cryptography regulations, Chinese authorities have full, unrestricted access to any data transmitted or stored within the country. I'm just going to say that again. They have full and unrestricted access to all data that is either stored in or transmitted through the country of China. So even if they are using a cloud-based server and they are occasionally going through this stuff, um, it is, it's truly terrifying <laughs> that these people have it. That means that there's no um, there's no secrets. It doesn't matter if you're using a VPN. They say here, no private or encrypted messages, no anonymous online accounts, no confidential data. All data will be accessible to the Chinese government. There will be no place for foreign-owned companies to hide. That includes places like Google. That includes a lot of these companies. And so you need to be aware that when you spit in a cup and you send off your DNA profile, it might be an American company. It might be a European company. But there's a very decent chance that they use now or they choose to use in the future Chinese servers, cloud storage, and so on. And all of that stuff is going to be accessible to the Chinese government. So where does that leave us? That leaves us with this terrifying thought that the Chinese government is being able to pull profiles, genetic profiles, of uh, people in this country. And this is what you are giving up when you do that. I'm going to read the Fourth Amendment because it brings into question a lot of these types of searches, which obviously the Chinese government is not beholden to. If you go into their country, you're subject to their laws, including the data. So the Fourth Amendment says, the right of the people to be secured in their persons, houses, papers, and effects against unreasonable searches and seizures shall not be violated, and no warrant shall issue, but upon probable cause, that's our big one, probable cause, supported by oath or affirmation, that's what the law enforcement officer has to do, they have to either swear or attest, and particularly describing the place to be searched and the persons or things to be seized. Once they have seized your data, that cannot be unseized. Once you have surrendered it, that's a consent search you have allowed. And so just be aware. Now, in, in my case, the U.S. government already has all my data. They have my, um, I have my DNA. There's nothing I can do about it. It's out there. Uh, when I was in active duty in the military, you have an opportunity to either do a swab or not do a swab. They do like a blood test and so on. And that's so they can identify your body if you die. I was going into a combat arms profession where I thought that was a possibility. And I would rather my family be able to ID my remains than not. This is a weird thing to do. Um, anybody who's probably been in the infantry had probably the same experience. Uh, I know pilots and stuff like that do the same thing in the Air Force where I was. So anybody that might be downrange um, in sort of a... Uh, kinetic role. They, uh, I had boot prints made, uh, footprints made in case, because boots tend to protect feet, but fingerprints tend to get blown off. So there's a lot of like, you know, data that I've surrendered to the, to the U S government. Um, no big deal. You know, when I was an FBI agent, I had to give them all my medical records as well. So the federal government has access to mine. And many of you are in the same boat. If you were a federal law enforcement or military, you, you already know this, like they've got a swab, they've got all your stuff. Um, but if you haven't done those things and you're not real crazy about having your data sent off to China, it's one thing for the U.S. government to have access to it. We tend to store things locally. Uh, it's quite another for someone to know that they have surrendered their data to the Communist Party of China. That is a real big concern that I would have and something that uh, I think we need to at least be aware of as you sit there and decide whether or not you want to know if you're 13% Czech, as I was joking in my, my uh, tweet. Um, I don't know how much data you're going to you know, what you're going to do with that. Are you trying to find a lost cousin? Sure. Great. Um, you might find some really weird things in your family. And uh, there's been some evidence of people finding, you know, adultery and, and, and babies that were made out of wedlock. And, and, you know, people found their, their parents after 20, 30 years in ways. Um, we actually have a, I have a new cousin as of a, two years ago that we didn't know about. Who's the son of my, my dad's brother, uh, from a one night stand <laughs> right after high school. And he's in his you know sixties. So that's pretty crazy. Uh, I don't know if that's good or bad. It's a thing. It exists. In some ways, I think that maybe the life they led, they weren't lacking anything, but maybe they were. Maybe they were looking for that. So I'm not ready to pass judgment on it, but I am saying we need to be aware of that stuff. And I think people are getting more and more aware. The danger is, is that once you put them out there in the world and they're searchable by the government, once there is probable cause, um, it's really difficult for me to, to buy into this sort of thing because I think it's a general warrant when we're talking about describing the particular place to be searched particularly describing the place to be searched should not be a database with all the records. It should not be describing like an enormous 45,000 square foot warehouse. And we're going to go find, you know, evidence in there of your hair or something. That's really scary stuff. I think it's broad. It's the same issue I have with geofence warrants, which are, I think, general warrants as well. And that means general warrants is to say that they do not particularly describe the place to be searched or the person or things to be seized. They, the, the Constitution tells us they must be specific, 
very specific. The courts get to rule how specific is is specific enough. But I would suggest that just because something happened or just because there is a place that has some data doesn't mean that we should go looking for it. Because there's no telling that this guy's DNA was going to be in there. This was somebody who involved, was involved in the killing. Um, at the same time, I want killers to be caught. So we're just dealing with a hard uh, reality of a lot of information and we're processing it. We don't necessarily have laws that are protecting us on that. So you have to protect yourself. That's all I'm going to advocate for. Um, with that, I'm missing out on a crime and punishment segment today. Like I said, I don't have a producer to bring him in, but uh, we will do a crime and punishment. And if you're not following my friend, Real Steve Friend, at Real Steve Friend on Twitter, um, you're missing out on the OPR files, which is our crime and punishment section. These are the misdeeds of the FBI that are happening on a regular basis, and they are released every quarter. And he's releasing five years of these to you. So that's 20 different uh, lists of Office of Professional Responsibility um, investigations and the punishments that underwent. And what you'll find is that uh, for unprofessional conduct with a police officer, which is why I don't have a paycheck, that generally doesn't result in you losing your job. It usually would involve like a letter of reprimand. Um, but beating your wife savagely and knocking her unconscious might get you a 60-day suspension. So I think these are uh, relevant to my story. I think they are interesting just in the general public because once you know how the FBI works, I think then you can better decide how to advise your representatives and ask your people um, who are representing you in Congress how to do oversight. But uh, without this information, which was never available to the public, um, you're never going to be able to do that sort of stuff. So I uh, encourage you to check out Steve Friend's stuff since we don't have him on here to read one and uh, we'll get him on real soon again to do another one of the crime and punishments things as soon as I can get um, Mr. Phil Kennedy out of his uh, family stuff. So with that I thank you so much for listening to the Kyle Serafin show. Uh, please like, subscribe share it to your friends if you enjoy what you heard. You can go on any of the places where we, you hear podcasts obviously and um, you can share it if your friends are not into Apple. They can find it on Spotify. Uh, it's all under Podbean so check that sucker out like, share, subscribe, five-star reviews. I will read one uh, next time because Phil has access to all that stuff. He actually runs out in the back end, so I'm going to have to send him this video. Um, thanks so much for listening. Thanks for spending your hour with me. Um, I hope this was of value to you, and uh, feel free to follow me on Twitter and on True Social. It's at Kyle Serafin, K-Y-L-E-S like Sierra, E-R-A, P like Papa, H-I-N, like November and uh, feel free to hit me up with questions and stuff like that. I respond to a lot of them uh, unless they're just totally rude or they're off base or it sounds like you're having a mental breakdown. I will respond and tell you. And uh, sometimes I retweet some of those folks because I think a lot of you have really great points that are not being boosted in a way to a bigger audience. And if I can share mine, I'm going to happily do it uh, again. Thanks so much for joining me and I hope you have a wonderful day. Thanks for listening to the Kyle Serafin show. Be sure to follow him on Twitter and truth at Kyle Serafin.